Bibles with me to Acts chapter 21. That's where we will be this morning. And in Acts 21, rather in Acts chapter 20 last week, Paul has been traveling and he's on his third missionary journey. And as he's returning back to Jerusalem from his third missionary journey, he arrives in, in several places and he's all the way over here in Achaia on the left of the screen, which is present day Greece. And also up there in Macedonia, which is north of there, which is kind of present-day Europe, if you will, or Eastern Bloc Europe. But he's been traveling around, and Paul is not on schedule. He's kind of in a rush. Now, Paul's uh, got a desire to go back to Jerusalem by Passover. He wants to make uh, a donation to the Jerusalem church to encourage the believers there because they're in a famine still. And they're also experiencing oppression, those that are Jewish Christians, because of their faith. And so uh, Paul is gathering up a donation, basically a free will offering for the churches there in Achaia and Macedonia. And he's gathering it, not because they require it, as the people that have sent out the, the gospel message, that's where Jesus went to, and that's where all the Christians spread from. But they want to give a free will offering to bless the church because they're in hard times and because also they want to express how thankful they are that they have brought the gospel away from just their home. Oftentimes the gospel stays within the church and it never blesses anyone else because we're all about ourselves. And so they were all about themselves. Let's not get a, a, a stained glass idea of the early church. So what God did is in his overarching uh, power and authority, he allowed a little bit of heat to be turned up on the early Christian church. He allowed a little bit of persecution. And persecution is the impetus for what caused uh, modern day missions. When persecution happened, all the Christians that were all in their holy huddle there in Jerusalem, they kind of got scattered because of the fear of being put in jail, the fear of death. And so they traveled to all these other countries and eventually, Paul ends up over here in Achaia in Macedonia, sharing the gospel with everyone. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, that's a good message. But if it stays in the Bible and nobody ever shares it with somebody else, then even though he died for whosoever would believe in him, those that don't know can't respond to the gospel. And so God in his, in his majesty and in his power has sent missionaries all over the place. Paul is one of them. So Paul desires to get back to Jerusalem by Passover to make this offering from all the churches gathered together. But what happens is he finds out that there's a threat against his life by the Jews who are traveling back for Passover that do not believe in Jesus. And since there were shuttles going back from where he was in Achaia, he'd be on a ship from that distance all the way to Jerusalem with a bunch of people that want to put him to death. And so because of that, he decides, I'll take the long way, take the long way home. And he'll travel up Achaia into Macedonia. He'll get on a ship at Philippi and he'll go back to Troas. And with him, he's not traveling alone, is a representative from each one of the churches that made an offering so that Paul would be held accountable, so that they could go back to their churches after the offering is given to the Jerusalem church, 
and they can say, hey, your money wasn't just wasted and given to some, some guy or Paul didn't spend it on himself. He actually gave it to the cause that you donated it to. And so they're traveling with him and he ends up at Troas. And then, so we studied that two weeks ago and then he traveled down the coast in a boat to Miletus there on the tip of the coast by Ephesus. Now in Miletus, Paul gave a very emotional and a very hearty encouragement and a teaching to the Christian believers there, the elders of the Ephesian church. The Ephesians were in a very ungodly city, but they had a a growing church and a maturing church. And so Paul, because he didn't have time to be there with all the people that he knew in Ephesus, because when he planted the church there, he stayed for three years. So he built many relationships in that time. And since he was still trying to get back to Jerusalem, now it was too late to go back for Passover. He was trying to get there in time for another feast called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, which was 50 days after Passover. And so if you'll remember back to Acts, or early Acts, the Feast of Pentecost was when God sent the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascended into heaven. And so Paul wants to get back there by then, he spent, but he still spends a little bit of time teaching his elders there of the Ephesian church in Miletus. So all this is background information, because this week we catch up with Paul as he's leaving that place where he just gave this very emotional and yet kind of a farewell speech to the, the elders there in Ephesus. But he's doing this because he knows that this is his last missionary journey, that he's going to be able to be free to go wherever, wherever he wants. And because of that, he's making sure to instill in people, the people he's invested in, hey, if there was one thing I could say to you before I die, here it is. And that's what Paul's doing then. And as he's leaving Miletus, they actually follow him all the way to the boat before he leaves. And so when we start there in Acts chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass that when he had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos. Now that word there, now it came to pass that when he had departed from them, in other words, it was such an emotional departure That word there actually means that when he tore himself away from those people that he loved, he set sail. Remember back there in verse 38, it says that they were sorrowing that he was leaving, most of all, for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him all the way to the ship. When you invest your time and your efforts into people, you don't like to see them go. You don't like to leave them. But last week in his speech to them, he said, I commend you to the grace of God. He knew that though these people were people he invested in, ultimately they weren't really his people. They were Jesus's. And so he's saying, I'm commending you to him completing that work that he started in you. And so as he departs, he takes a boat ride with many connections. Says that he was running a straight course and we came to Kos. Now on the map, you see there's an island there called Kos. And then it says there that the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, and finding, that's not Pantera for you rock and roll lovers, that's Patera, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and we set sail. 
And when we had sighted Cyprus, that's the island there in the middle, he had already been there before. When we sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, and we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. So that's quite a journey. And Paul's trying to get back there pretty quickly because he's already wasted a lot of time, although in the Lord's eyes, he hasn't wasted any time. He's been investing in people along the way. But what we're going to find out is that Paul, while traveling, if you'll remember to his first missionary journey, everywhere he went, he shared the gospel with people that had never heard of Jesus. And now on his trip back, what we're going to find is that everywhere he stops, he finds fellowship He finds a home to stay in of someone who is already a believer in Jesus. And so that's amazing to me because Paul has made quite the canvas of this area. He's looped around this whole area three times. And in his investment, he's made such close friendships, though sometimes for a short time he's been there, that they're willing to let him stay in the house. Now, obviously at the same time, this is Eastern culture, hospitality is very high on their list of priorities. They would bring strangers into their home and they would take care of them as if they were more than just their own family. And so Paul gets to experience hospitality from these other believers. So verse 4 says, Finding disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they told Paul, these disciples, through the Spirit, not to go to Jerusalem. So when he had come to the end of those days, we departed and we went on our way. They all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and we prayed. In other words, they go to Tyre, they stay with the family, or are we in Ptolemais now? No, we're not there yet. In Tyre, he stays with the family. They tell him, it says, through the Spirit, a word of knowledge, they believe that Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And then as they depart, Paul says, bye, I won't see you again. And they go back with him to the shore, to where the very ship is that he's taken, and they kneel down and they pray. Now this is a cultural thing. This isn't just because they don't want to see him go. Culturally, if you have people stay with you, you would travel with them all the way back to the farthest point you could before they departed. It's just what they would do. And then they prayed. They prayed with them. They commended Paul and his cohorts as travel mates to the Lord. So when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home, verse 6. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais. We greeted the brethren and we stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and we came to Caesarea And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven who stayed with him. Now, Philip isn't just some random person he comes up to his home. Philip is actually an individual that had been involved in the church from its very beginnings. So I want you to turn with me to Acts in chapter 6. Because this is where Philip kind of gets his first ministry given to him by the by the apostles, actually. They had a problem. The, there was a group of Greek or Hellenist uh, widows that were not, they were being neglected. They felt like they weren't getting served like the Jewish widows. And so because they felt they were being neglected, they brought the problem to the apostles. 
Apparently the church had a, a ministry of taking food to those who were widows in the church. And the people that were doing it weren't doing it in a way that made the people feel loved. So they brought a complaint to the apostles and the apostles said this. They said, why don't you gather some guys from around you, men who are faithful, full of the Holy Spirit, and we'll put them to this task. We see the problem, but we need somebody else to take care of it. So in Acts chapter 6, it says in verse 2, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples. They said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, the, the apostles aren't saying, hey, we're too good to do that. We can't take meals on wheels. I mean, we're men of God. We teach the word. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is our calling is to teach the word of God, to dispense the bread of life through the word of God to God's people. And our calling is to spend as much time as possible in prayer and in preparation to feed that word of God meal. So because of that, because there's too many people for us to take care of, we need to appoint some disciples from the group to take care of this need. And the way that we want to appoint that is we have a criteria of these disciples that are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we want you to give them this task. Because everybody in the body of Christ needs a way, an outlet for service. And so they pick these men, and my point is, verse 5, the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. So one of these men is no doubt Philip. And that's where we come across him for the first time. And so then turn over to Acts chapter 8, where we catch up with Philip once again. Philip had been sent to Samaria in verse 4. It says, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip specifically went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them, and the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. So Philip, a man full of faith, chosen to wait tables to distribute food to people doesn't mean that's, that's the only thing that God can use him for. Apparently, during that time of service, God had also been teaching him the things from the Word of God. Anytime God gives you some way to serve the church, what you'll find is that you'll have a more of a hunger for the Word of God because you'll run into more problems than you will solutions. And so because of that, Philip had sought the Word of God, apparently, and because of that, he was then able to give a reason for the hope that lied within him. So when he was spread because of persecution, he ended up in Samaria. Now Samaria is to the north of Jerusalem. And Samaria was a place where no Jew would possibly go because they hated the Samaritans. They basically called them half-breeds. They were people that had been conquered by, they were in the northern territory of Israel. And so when other nations came in, 
and had taken them over because they had not been serving their God, but they were serving idols. God said, I'm going to punish you by the other nations. He allowed other nations to come in and to take them over. And basically they, they took their identity away from them as, as Israelites. And they started bringing in their own people and having them intermarry with the Jews. And then because of that, they started worshiping the gods of all those other nations. And because of that, they didn't have a wholehearted focus on the Lord because they were compromised in their faith. They were mixing religions together. And so because of that, those that were in Jerusalem thought they were high and mighty and they were like, hey, we hate those guys. They compromised the faith. Well, what you find out is because Jerusalem basically saw only fault in these northern Israelites, they felt the same thing. Their, their part of the nation had also got infiltrated with other gods and they started serving them. They got prideful in their own obedience to the Lord and they fell to the same temptation. My point is, is that when Philip goes up there and preaches that Jesus is the way for salvation, that he was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, that he was the sacrifice, that all of those religious sacrifices that the Jews were called to do were to point to Jesus. And so when he explained from the Old Testament and kind of unraveled their misunderstandings about what God gave them, they received the word with all readiness and they believed. And I love this because Philip was used in a mighty way, but he wasn't necessarily a pastor. He was just a man who loved the Lord and he was serving faithfully. He went to a place, he shared what he knew about the Lord and these multitudes were saved. Even people that were possessed with demon spirits were healed. And so because of that, it's my assumption that if God uses you in that kind of way, wouldn't it make us kind of assume that that's my ministry? I'm going to be the next Billy Graham. I'm Philip, the guy who goes to cities and many get saved because I preach. But the reality is, is that after this took place, we don't hear about Philip again until verse 26 of Acts chapter 8, where it says there, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So Philip doesn't respond by saying, Hey, wait a minute. You can't send me to the desert. I want you to send me to a place where there's lots and lots of people. And so what he does is, he doesn't say that at all. He says, This must be the Lord's will. And he goes there to the, the place in Jerusalem, to Gaza, and he arose and he went, verse 27, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, this was a man that had lots of authority, had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet, and then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So God took this man who had been used to to preach the gospel to a multitude. He took them to a place of seclusion where there was no one. And along comes this chariot. And the Lord says, this is why I sent you here. I sent you here for this man. I want you to go to speak to this Ethiopian eunuch. And if you'll do that, then that's what I want you to do. So Philip does this. What I want you to know is that extra biblical accounts tell us that Philip, the evangelist, is well known for starting the Coptic church in Ethiopia. It's a Christian church. It's one of the 
oldest, largest Christian churches in the world. Philip never even went there. But because he had influence over this one Ethiopian eunuch and he was obedient to the Spirit of God, an entire church was started. So what do you think that would Philip would do after this? He doesn't know the end result. He just knows he was sent to the desert. But it says there, after he explained the passage that this Ethiopian eunuch was struggling with, um, the Ethiopian eunuch says, it says there in verse 36, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? So he baptizes him. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so because of his expression of belief, he then takes a step of obedience and he's baptized. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. He baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Philip goes, shares the gospel. This guy gets saved. He wants to get baptized. He baptizes him. Comes up out of the water. Philip's gone. It's completely gone. He disappears. It says there, the Spirit of the Lord took him somewhere else. Who knows what actually happened? But I'm assuming it's just like when Philip got called to the desert. The Lord said, I want you to go to this place. And so Philip did. And because of that, God used Philip in a mighty way. And it says there in verse 40, But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Okay? So that's where we find him today. I read all of that because anytime you read a text, there's a context. And I love that the Bible, it, 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 it has it all in there. You just got to look for it. So we find him in Caesarea, and apparently his next ministry is to minister to the Apostle Paul whom he probably didn't even know was saved until he showed up at his doorstep. Because when Philip left Jerusalem, the Apostle Paul was still one of those that was persecuting Christian believers, having them put to death, even consenting to the death of Stephen, which was a deacon that served with Philip. I love that. Because now Philip, a friend of Stephen, who was killed by Paul, is going to love on Paul. He's going to let him into his home and take him in. He's going to feed him and let him sleep there for the night. How amazing is that? How much of the gospel is just laced in that story? Jesus in the midst of all that stuff. Philip very easily could have known the story of what happened with Stephen and been like, the Apostle Paul, maybe he's saved, but he's not coming into my house. I got kids. I can't risk that. But he didn't. He brought him in. So, back in Acts chapter 21. Verse 8, On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man, Philip, had four virgin daughters who prophesied. They had the gift of prophecy, and apparently they were virgins. Now, that just means they weren't married and they had been chased. So Philip, being a faithful man, even though he had used his life, given his life to serving God, he didn't have kids that were just preacher's kids. I say that because, I mean, you even watch uh, Bart Simpson. You guys ever watch The Simpsons? 
who is it? Who's the who's the preacher in that in that show? You remember? Anybody remember? I can't remember either. No, Ned Flanders was one of the guys that went to the church. But anyway, my point is, is that the preacher had a kid that was kind of a, I mean, off, I mean, a typical, like when you think of a pastor's kid, just, you know, making all kinds of mischief, getting in all kinds of trouble. I mean, nothing like a Christian should be. And so we're sold the lie that, well, if you serve the Lord, then you won't take care of things at home. But I see Philip here being faithful in the small things, serving the Lord with his his life, and I see these four daughters that God's given him as a heritage, and what are they doing? They're walking with the Lord. They're virgins, and they're chaste, and they have the gift of prophecy. Not only are they walking with the Lord, but God's bestowed upon them gifts to build up other believers, and they're using them. And so as we, as we stayed, verse 10, many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, you know, Paul, give me your belt. So Paul does. Bound it, his own hands and feet. He ties his hands and his feet together with this belt to demonstrate, to draw everybody's attention to him. And then he gives a message from the Lord. He says, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, what, what I want you to notice, well, let's read the next verse. Now, when he heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. They pleaded with him because of the message that Agabus had just given. Now, Agabus isn't just some sporadic, random guy. But if you remember in Acts chapter 11, verse 27 through 30, Agabus was a prophet that dwelled, he lived in Judea. And he had traveled up to Antioch when the church first started. And he had prophesied, he said, here's what's going to happen. He was foretelling what God gave him to tell. He said, there's going to be a famine in the region of Judea. And so when he gave that message to the Antioch church, they said, okay, we're going to gather some money together so we can help them. We're going to gather some goods together so we can bless them. Because if they're going to go through a famine, they're going to need our support. And so they loved on them. That's what words of prophecy are for, to encourage believers to do what God's calling them to do. They saw the need because God spoke it to them, and they, they acted on it. And so then we see there that Agabus has told Paul, hey, you know, I'm going to take your belt and put it around my wrist because this is how you're going to be bound. Chains and problems, tribulations, are going to, that's what's waiting for you in Jerusalem. If you go there, that's what's going to happen. And so then, verse 12, when all those that were with them, even the people in that house, when they heard these things, both we, Luke is writing the book of Acts, so Luke is including himself here, we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. So the question comes up, is Paul supposed to go to Jerusalem? God's given a word of knowledge a prophecy, a foretelling, something that he's telling ahead of time so that Paul would know what's going to take place. So is Paul supposed to go to Jerusalem? Is it against God's will for him to go to Jerusalem? I would say no. And here's why I would say that. First of all, the message that Agabus gives is just that when Paul gets to Jerusalem, they're going to deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles He's going to be bound in chains 
and there's going to be tribulations. It doesn't say don't go. Maybe that's just too bare bones, but to me, the prophecies doesn't say don't go. The people that love Paul, their interpretation is because chains and trials await you, don't go. You're not supposed to go. It can't be the will of God for you to suffer. But is that the case? I would submit to you that that's not the case. Because if you go back to Acts chapter 20 on the last page, in verse 22, Paul had already heard from the Lord. In chapter 20, verse 22, Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit is testifying in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So this prophecy that Agabus gives is the same thing that he's been hearing in every city he's gone to. And then Paul says there, in verse 24, here's what he says, and I told you last time, last week, that this was the key verse. He says, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Here's the ministry he had received. He says, To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. God's will for my life is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Doesn't matter what else happens around that, I will not be moved. And so the word of God to him was not so much a don't go. The word of God to him was like when you drive down 21 and you go over tip top and there's a big sign with all the curves in it. It's not a warning to say you don't drive on this road. It's a warning to say be prepared. Be prepared because the curves that are ahead they're not like the road before you, so you need to slow down, right? Some people don't, and they experience the consequences. You need to slow down, and you need to be very careful about how you turn your wheel, because it's going to be curvy ahead. If you've got precious cargo, including yourself and your family, you want to be careful when you go. Be ready. Don't be caught unaware. God's warning Paul not to not go, but, hey, this is what's coming Gird yourself. Be prepared. And I love that about the Lord because He knows what's ahead all the time. Whether it's chains and tribulations or whether it's just a season of hard times. You know, last year, if I had been listening to the Lord better, perhaps the Lord was trying to tell me, hey, be prepared. Chains and tribulations await you. Now, I wasn't going to be delivered to the Gentiles. I wasn't going to be put in jail because of what I was preaching. But... What happened to us is we spent the whole time during the, the holidays kind of living it up and just, we were having fun and we were experiencing joy because we were celebrating all the right things. But in January, about January 5th or so, what happened was all of a sudden our drain pipes and our sewer lines all backed up on one day. We had no way to drain water out of our house. Now, no doubt that's not necessarily the biggest thing that could happen, but we weren't ready for it. I wonder if the Lord was trying to tell me, hey, here it comes, you know. And we had a, had a season of ease. And so it would be very easy for people around us to say, hey, you must be doing God's will because everything's working out. And it was. You know, God gave us a house down here the same day that our house sold in Farmington. Well, obviously, that's the will of God. Not necessarily. You just don't know. And so we need to listen to the Lord and not the people around us all the time. 
Now, sometimes God will use the people around us to speak to us. So don't despise when people have things to say to you, but weigh them against the Word of God. It's always important to balance those two things. So Paul, experiencing this uh, kind of being torn between what should I do, he's not torn. He's not blown away by every person that has an opinion because he knows what God's opinion is. He knows what God's plan is. So verse 12, he responds to them. He says, when we heard these things, both we and those from the place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. And then verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 13, he responds, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. And that's, it, it's always a mark of maturity for Christian believers. If they will pray, seek the Lord, ask him for the things they believe he wants for them, but also to have the same mind that was in Christ. Not my will, but yours be done, Lord. Even if it doesn't look right to me, I'm going to surrender to the fact that you have your best in mind for me. Sometimes we wish our own children would do that. You know, you, you give them words of wisdom because you've been there, you've done that, you've gotten a t-shirt, and they just despise what you have to give them, and then they go through the consequences. They experience the consequences of their sin, and then it's so easy to say, I told you so, but at the same time, sometimes they just won't listen. But maturity comes from receiving wisdom and advice, weighing it against the counsel of Scripture, and then praying about it and doing what God gives you and then realizing that sometimes God just drops people in your life because you won't hear it unless you have an audible voice. But he says, they say to him there, the will of the Lord be done. Paul couldn't be moved. He was, he was focused. He had set his face towards Jerusalem. I know somebody else that did the same thing. Jesus Christ, he had told his disciples, he said, when I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be given over to the Jews and to the, to the government and they're going to put me to death. I'm going to be beaten. But that's the will of God for me. And what did Peter say? He said, not so, Lord. This can't possibly, you're not going to be experiencing pain and sorrow and you're, you're going to be the king. And what did the Lord say to him? He said, get behind me, Satan. Now this was right after Peter had said, Lord, you're, you're, you're Jesus, you're the Messiah, who else can we go to? Right after that, Jesus had told him, I'm going to be put to death for the sins of the world. He said, not so, Lord, you're not going to be put to death. You're not going to experience famine, or excuse me, suffering and pain. You're going to be just fine. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So just because something is uncomfortable does not mean that it's not the will of God. So let's turn, I'm going to do a, a little bit of page turning on you, but let's, let's see what the New Testament has to say about the will of God. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's to the right. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, uh, no, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st Timothy. Nope, too far. Shouldn't have been speaking. <laughs> I know my Bible I used to have those little tabs. You guys have those Bibles with the little tabs? Those things are awesome. Especially when you're turning pages in front of everybody. 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter, uh, verse 3. 
start in verse 1. He says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. I love it when it says that in Scripture, because there are so many people that struggle with the will of God. They're struggling specifically, but I think sometimes we get so specific that we forget the, the, the rudimentary, the, the elementary things of the faith. He says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. You know what sanctification is? It's when God takes you, He plucks you from your life, He cleanses you, He forgives you of your sin, and He sets you apart for His use. It's like when you take a tool out of a drawer and you set it apart for your use. Maybe you share tools with your family and you're like, I need this tool tonight, so I'm going to set it aside for my use. God does that. He plucks us. He says, this is what use I have for you. And then he prepares us for that use. Part of that preparation is he sanctifies us. He saves us. Positionally, we are all we we will ever be in Christ. But as a part of that salvation, practically, we all know, hopefully you understand, that we still battle against sin. And so since we're not done battling against sin, God uses our lives and the temptations and the trials we go through to sanctify us, to set us apart for his use, to cleanse us. He allows the heat to be turned up so that what boils up to the top can be pulled off, kind of like dross from melted metal. You melt it up to a certain temperature and then all the impurities come to the top and you take this rake and you you rake off the dross from the top so that it's like fine silver or fine gold. So he sanctified the will of God for you, your sanctification. Then he lists some specific things. He says that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of such, as we also forewarned and testified. And then turn to chapter 5 in the same book. In verse 16, Paul then gives them another message. He says, here's the will of God for you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now when Paul writes this, he's writing this to a church that had begun with persecution. Paul was sent out of Thessalonian with uh, Thessalonica with death threats. That's why he left. But there were still believers living there who, in order to be a Christian, might cost them their life or their family or the people around them. So he said, this is the will of God for you in the midst of your situation to rejoice always, always be rejoicing about everything, to pray without ceasing Don't forget to lift these cares and these burdens up to the Lord. And in everything, not for everything, but in everything, give thanks. You don't have to give thanks when you get a flat tire on the side of the road and it's pouring down rain in 30 degrees. But you can give thanks in it, knowing that God either has a reason or he's going to use it to purify your life. So those are two ways that we know the will of God. So this thing that Paul's going through, this instance where he's finding out that him going to Jerusalem 
It's going to cause him to be put in chains and possibly in jail and then experience trials and tribulations. It's going to cause him to be sanctified. That's my point. And then one more in 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep going to the right after Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. Right after James. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Talks about government. Everybody in here loves to hear about the government, right? <laughs> Here's what the Christian is supposed to do when it comes to the government. Recognize that Paul is getting ready to be put in prison for the rest of his life by an ungodly government. But here's what Paul had written, to, or excuse me, Peter had written to the church. He says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. In other words, God set those leaders, whether they're ungodly or not. He set them in place. He's sovereign. He's in control. Even though sometimes we can't possibly see how that could be possible. He says, God set them over you as uh, those who will punish evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Verse 15, for this is the will of God. There it is again. That by doing good as Christians, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That by doing good, by serving the Lord, you'll put to silence those who are mockers of God. Those who are unbelievers. Those who reject that God is good. If you will do good and you will reflect His character, even submitting to the government that you're under, by the great, God's put us in this place, what you'll do is you'll silence anyone who would have anything negative to say about your character because you are a good citizen. He says, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence, that you may shut up the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now that verse will matter more next week as we look at Paul, because when he's put into jail, he's not going to be put into bonds or chains. He's not going to be accused of something he did. He'll be accused of something he didn't do. But you know what Paul's going to do? He's going to surrender that thing, that unrighteous judgment on himself. He's going to surrender to the will of God and say, hey, God's going to use this. And we see Paul going through this many times, but this time he knows that it's the will of God. He goes to jail. And because of that, we're going to see Paul not only speak before this Jewish audience in the midst of Jerusalem, but he's going to go to many major cities as a prisoner, not because he wants to go, but because this is where they take him. And he's going to appeal his case, being wrongly charged. His charge is going to be that he brought a Gentile into the court of the Jews inside the temple, which was a no-no, punishable by death. Even though he didn't do it, he's going to submit to these charges. He's going to appeal to Caesar. And with every major dignitary that he goes before, he's going to preach Jesus to them. He's going to tell them about salvation that can be had through Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, what is the will of God for your life? What kind of thing is God calling you to? 
Well, number one, we know it's sanctification. Number two, we know that it is to surrender under the government, even though it doesn't make sense, because God's going to use it. It doesn't mean we have to agree. And any time the government asks you or mandates that you do anything that causes you to reject your faith in Jesus Christ, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about blaspheming the Lord because the government said so, or forsaking the fellowship of the brethren because the government says so. Because I believe that in our lifetime, that that is a very high possibility that those things will come to pass. But the will of God for us is our sanctification and the glorification of God, that the gospel be preached. And sometimes God's going to call us to go through hard times, even chains that we don't deserve, in order that we can preach the gospel. It might be a job. It might be a family get-together that you feel like you're chained to. It might be a, a trip that you don't want to take. It might be, you know, for a kid, it might be some time in ISS. You know, it might be some sort of thing that you go through that you feel like you're completely out of control. Remember that even though it seems like you're out of control, God's always in control. And it might be His will for your life. So, that being said, let's take communion this morning. Because sometimes surrendering to the Lord is harder than others, but if we recognize that it was His blood that, it, that purchased our salvation, that it's His body that sustains us through this life, that following the things that He did, and seeing that He, as the Son of God, surrendered His life to die for charges that He never, for accusations that He never did, He gave up His rights, He left heaven so that you and I would have a perfect example and a Savior that dies for us. And so, as we take communion this morning, I want you just to contemplate what it is that you're in the midst of right now. Maybe it's something that's shaking your life. It's moving you. And what I want you to do is I want you to take that thing that gives you fear, doubt, struggle, worry, and I want you just to, to remember who saved you, who procured your salvation at the expense of his own life, and, and remember that he is just as interested in meeting you in that spot as he was in your, your own salvation, your rebirth. So we're going to sing, we're going to do a song, and then as you guys feel led, come up, grab uh, uh, the bread and the cup, go back to your seat, and then we will, I will lead you through communion. So, uh, Father, thank you so much for providing for us a sacrifice that cost you your very life. Thank you for being willing to lay down your rights so that we could be saved, so that our sin problem could be dealt with. I pray that we, as your sons and daughters, would be willing to do the same thing, to lay down our life so that others might hear the gospel. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And sometimes our friends, though they are very good friends, they don't know you, Lord. Many of us have unbelieving friends and family members, especially in this, this season of Christmas and Thanksgiving. And you know, sometimes it feels like the baton death march to go to every family gathering. But if it's your will for us sometimes to, to go to those gatherings, may you use it so that someone that's never heard or never experienced the love of Christ, may you use us to spread that message just like you did Philip, just like you did Stephen. 
And, and Lord, help us to be okay when our plans have to get laid down so that yours would be brought into light. So Father, as we sing this song and as we take communion and as we get the elements, Lord, we, we just want to worship you and thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.